production. Leslie Keane is an investigative journalist and New York Times bestselling author. In her book, Surviving Death, she ponders the question, do our souls survive death with our personalities intact or is consciousness merely a fabrication of the brain? Leslie probes the world by way of science as well as personal experience. She reminds us that time and space, mystery and order are so much stranger and more generous than we can comprehend. In this heartfelt conversation, Leslie and I traverse our own personal experiences with signs from the afterlife, near-death experiences, and does consciousness exist once we have passed? There are so many things that show us that consciousness can function independently of the brain. You know, that it's not just something that the neurons in the brain are firing that's what consciousness is all about. And that, you know, without a brain, there's no consciousness because there've been so many situations that have shown us that consciousness can exist even when a brain is not functioning. When somebody is essentially clinically dead, there's no brain waves, there's no heartbeat, yet things still happen in the person's consciousness. So consciousness is way bigger than our brain. I'm Sarah Grimberg. And this is a life of greatness. Working as a podcast and radio producer, I have been fortunate enough to cross paths with many intriguing people who have had a profound impact on me. In this series, I share stories and experiences from the people who have brought inspiration to my life and hopefully yours too. Leslie Keane is the author of many New York Times bestselling books. Her book, Surviving Death, has recently been turned into a highly acclaimed Netflix docuseries exploring personal stories and research on near-death experiences, reincarnation and paranormal phenomena. This topic has always been one that's close to my heart and for those feeling unsure about what happens when a loved one passes or who are genuinely just interested in talking about a world beyond what we can see, my hope is that Leslie's testimony and scientific evidence ignites the inner hope you seek most and guides you towards peace. Leslie, you are a New York Times best-selling author and journalist, and you combine your studies of the paranormal with science. What got you into studying this kind of work? This has always sort of been in the background for me because I'm interested in the larger questions uh, that face us as human beings. And I think the two big questions are, are we alone in the universe and what happens after we die? And so I've, always, I've been kind of um, always interested in this, you know, as a huge question that has so much mystery to it and so much awe and so much challenge, uh, both, you know, as a journalist, but also personally. Um, and so some things happened. I lost a close friend um, and I just I was was um, offered the opportunity to do a second book by my publisher. And so that's when I really jumped into this full speed ahead in uh, some years ago and went on this whole journey while I was writing the book. It, it involved a lot of personal experiences as well as research. Have you always believed in a world that we can't see? I would say yes. I, I would definitely say that's true. I mean, as a child, I had a sense of it, although I didn't cognitively you know, put it together. But I know being very, uh, as a child, just being profoundly affected by things that seemed otherworldly. And then when I when I went to college, I started practicing Buddhism very seriously. And it was at that point that, I mean, that also is pointing to some kind of other 
level of consciousness, other reality, other, you know, realm or however you want to say it, a bigger, a oneness of everything. So, yeah, I would say from really my whole adult life, I've been interested in this and kind of pursuing it in a lot of different ways. But the journalism didn't start until about 20 years ago. And what I love about what you've done in Surviving Death, the book that you have written and Surviving Death, the Netflix series, which has absolutely taken off. I know that it went to number two or three. It's it's just done so unbelievably well, is that you combine sophisticated academics, universities, top universities, doctors. These are people with scientific backgrounds and you're combining their work with the work of uh you know, people in this realm. What made you want to do that? Well, I think it's because I'm a journalist, basically. And what, you know, what I wanted to do with this material, because it's always been presented mainly by people who have experiences in various ways, or people will write about one aspect of this question. And um, as a journalist, you know, I want hard evidence. I want facts. I want authorities who can tell me this is how we know that this is true. And so, that's been really, I think, that's been my way into it, is to want to present those voices. And as you say, they're out there. Yeah. There are serious doctors and psychiatrists and psychologists and neuro- neuroscientists and all kinds of people who study these things. And most people don't know that. So I thought it was really important to give credibility to the question of survival and all the great evidence we have that you know, it's really provocative and suggests that it could be real. I wanted to bring in that that authoritative body of work. Um, and so, yes, yeah, so I think it's really important that people know about the great scientific authorities that take it very seriously. And really, the more they study it, the more they realize it has solidity. There mm-hmm. is data that can be accumulated. And so it has a solid ground to stand on. And that's really important. Well, I didn't realize how many studies had been done on this kind of and that they, they have studied this work, I mean, from mediumship to just consciousness living outside of the brain for many, many years. So is, this isn't something that's just come up recently. This is something that has been studied for a very long period of time. And I think the biggest takeout for me was the fact that consciousness exists past when our body deceases. I think that's true. I mean, no, I think... The evidence really does show us very, I would say, close to proof, although skeptics will find other ways of explaining it. But there are so many things that show us that consciousness can function independently of the brain, you know, that it's not just something that the neurons in the brain are firing and that's what consciousness is all about. And that, you know, without a brain, there's no consciousness because there have been so many situations that have shown us that consciousness can exist even when a brain is, is not functioning. When somebody is essentially clinically dead, there's no brain waves, there's no heartbeat, yet things still happen in the person's consciousness. So that's just one component. There are small children who remember previous lives, you know, so there's so much evidence showing us that consciousness is way bigger than our brain and that we don't understand how that mechanism works. The question of whether that consciousness continues on after the physical brain dies for the final time, that's something we can't prove because obviously we don't know because that person is now dead, right? 
But so that's, but I would say there's essentially really is proof that the that consciousness uh, can function independently of a brain, or at least with a brain that's not supposed to be able to perceive anything according to the scientific paradigm. Obviously writing Surviving Death and it being so successful and then the Netflix documentary, do you get worried about people who would think this is all woo-woo and look at you from a professional perspective and and maybe question what you're saying? Was that ever a concern at all? I'd say that was a concern. Uh, when I was writing Surviving Death, it was originally going to be a research book. So I was safe, right? But then I started to have all these experiences of my own. And I thought about it and I realized, you know, I'm taking a chance here because I'm exposing myself as a as somebody on a personal journey, not just as a journalist. So I did feel at that moment that I was taking a risk by doing that. And I, I decided that it wouldn't have been honest for me not to do that because my what I was going to write in my book was colored and affected by what the journey I was going on on a personal level. They were so closely intertwined, intertwined that I just couldn't ignore them because I'm trying to be this research journalist, right? So I thought at that moment, I'm really taking a chance here. You know, people are going to, people are going to ridicule me. They're going to think I'm crazy. Uh, I've lost it. I'm no longer just this objective person. And I just thought at this point, you know, after doing this for 20 years, I thought, you know, I'm just going to be real and true about it and they can think what they want because I know what happened to me. And I'm presenting it in an objective way. I analyzed everything, I, every experience I had. Um, so I was, you know, and I've had that concern. And I had it again when we did Surviving Death, you know, being in scenes involving mediums and stuff like that. Um, but I really haven't had a lot of that happen to me. I mean, I have not had that kind of criticism from anybody of, of importance to me. I mean, occasionally you'll get people that go on Facebook and they say nasty things, right? Or something like that. Um, but I really haven't had a lot of that. So I think, I think because I do try to stay very objective in the way I present it and people know me as a journalist that I think they respect what I'm saying. And I, I've been fortunate enough, even though I've had the worry about it, I haven't really had the worries come to pass. Yeah, I would agree. It's it's I think it's the best body of work that I've seen for for this subject matter. So, well done. Well, thank you very much. Thank you, Sarah. You touched on past lies, which is something that I haven't really ever looked into and found it fascinating both in your book and in the film. There is a story about a boy called James, a young 2-year-old who is basically becomes obsessed with with this situation that he remembers about a World War II pilot. Can you explain to us a bit about that story and, and the findings? Yeah, I mean, this is an example of a highly evidential reincarnation case. The child is an American boy who was born, I think, in 1998, in the late 90s in the United States. Um, his name is James Leininger, and as you said, he had all these memories of being, of crashing and dying in a plane in World War II. And they, they came out very gradually. I mean, he would just say things to his parents that made no sense and that, that he also had a lot of knowledge about how planes worked. And one of the ways these things came out is he started to have these terrible nightmares reliving this crash over and over again. And he would scream, uh, airplane crash on fire, little man can't get out. 
And you know, this would happen many times every week. And he was an absolute terror. And his parents would just start asking him, well, who is this little man? And, you know, ask him questions very gently about it. And eventually he ended up telling them, you know, the name of the person that he says he was, the first name, which was the same name as him. So the parents didn't know what that meant, but that was an important piece of evidence. The name of his best friend, the name of the aircraft carrier that he flew off of, um, where the airplane was hit, what part of the plane, you know, lots of details. And his dad determined to prove that the child couldn't possibly be reincarnated because he didn't believe in it, researched everything the boy said, everything James told him. And, um, eventually was able to find that everything he said uh, corresponded to the life of one person. His dad ended up going to a reunion of veterans who were on the warship that James told them he had flown off of in his previous life. It's a long story. And in my, the book, the chapter of my book covers all the details and the chronology of it, but the, eventually they found out who that person was. And it was a man named James Houston, the junior. And what was interesting also about that was that little James Leininger had drawn all these pictures of the crash. He always labeled them James 3. And his parents would say, why are you saying James 3? And he would say, because I'm the third James. And when they found that the previous person who he said he was was named James Houston Jr., it just stunned them because the junior would make him the third. And, you know, those kinds of details, um, plus the knowledge that he had of airplanes that he'd never been exposed to. And he also ended up meeting the previous person's sister, who was in her 80s at the time, and the person who was the best friend of who he says he was in his past life. So it's extremely evidential because it's very hard to explain how he could have known all this information. He was never exposed to any of it. And yet it was all accurate to the life of one person who lived, you know, many years earlier and had no relationship to their family. So it's not like he could have picked it up mm. somehow from his mother or something. There's just no way to explain that. And he was convinced that he was that person and he behaved as if he was that person. And I mean, we need to point out that, as I was saying, that the child was two. So it wasn't like he was a teenager and looking up all this information. I mean, I have young children. A two-year-old is barely able to speak initially. So... The fact that he was able to say intricate details of planes and what this was. I mean, his mum, I remember at one point, didn't even know he was pointing to some area of the plane and the, and the mum didn't even know what that was and looked it up and it was exactly correct, let alone knowing all these facts. is It's unbelievable what happened to him now and how has that affected his journey in life? Yeah, I mean, that's what we did in this in the series, Surviving Death on Netflix. What the interesting thing was, we went back to see James. He's now 21, or he was when we filmed him. And he'd never gone on camera as an adult. He's quite shy, you know. And um, I don't want to give away too much because I want people to see it. But basically, he, um, he, you know, it really, really affected his life. And it affected the life of his parents because it's kind of traumatic for parents to go through this. They yeah. don't know what's going on with their child. And he had, you know, he just, because his parents went public with it, it just affected him a lot growing up. They went public with it when he was around four because they were, that was when they still hadn't solved the case and they were trying to get more information about it. But one thing he did tell us when we went back to see him, which I found really sort of um, very moving, was that he still sometimes gets flashbacks 
to that crash. He doesn't really remember anything else because generally, and there have been many of these cases documented by scientists at the University of Virginia, and that's in you know a university in America that studies these cases. Most children forget all all of it by the ages of five, six, or seven. And James did pretty much, but he does the, the the memory of that crash was so intense for him that sometimes he'll still get a flashback of that. And he was describing to us uh, how he was in a minor car accident, you know, and just at the moment when he was about to hit the other car, he had this reliving of that crash. And it's the feeling of the dread that he knowing that he was going to die and to hear him describe that. You could feel how real that was for him, and he lives with that still, um, which is somewhat unusual. But it's 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 the moment. I think it's that moment that really stays with these children more than anything else when they do have the memories. And with James, it's it's lasted. Why is it at that the five, six, seven year old that they lose the memories? Well, I don't know if I mean the, the what they the scientists say at the Division of Perceptual Studies in in University of Virginia is um, the ch- the child at that point tends to become more socialized, so they start going to school and they're interacting with their peers, and I, it may also have to do with the development of their brains. You yeah. know, that different things happen to children's brains as they get older, um, and they just kind of move into a more kind of grounded, you know. Uh, the type, the part of their brain that's learning, yes. and it becomes more active. Um, so I think that's sort of what they, what the people think. And lots of time, the parents, if if the child can have some way of kind of resolving what's happened to them, such as meeting someone from the previous family or going to where they used to live in the previous life, some event like that will often sort of resolve it for the child and then it allows them to move on. So it also depends on their particular psychology. I think it's a combination. Yes. This is just absolutely fascinating. Another topic, because obviously your book and the movie are made up of different topics about surviving death, is near-death experiences. And there is a lady who is, it's, who's just in the movie who is Dr. Mary Neal, and she has a fascinating story about how she was kayaking and basically she basically dies. But her story of being able to remember uh, her near-death experience and everything that comes around that just blew my mind. Can you let us know a bit about your findings with her in particular and uh, near-death experiences? Yeah, I mean, her story is astonishing. I have to agree with you because she was in a kayaking. She was a medical doctor in a kayaking accident. She was underwater for 30 minutes, literally drowned. And she remembers leaving her body under the water. She remembers feeling all her bones were broken, but she didn't have fear. She wasn't in pain. She just left her body. And then she describes, uh, and she, you know, all this experiences of going to this other realm and meeting beings and, and um, then having and learning some things and then having to come back into her body. And that's, you know, the, the, she was rescued. They finally found her body, assuming she was dead, you know, pumped on her heart or whatever. And she went back in, but, um, and it, this is a common kind of experience that you hear from people all over the world in all different cultures where 
um, and hers was dramatic because she was gone for so long. The fact that she was able to come back is just astonishing. But um, where people will have no brain activity. I mean, her body was blue, bloated. Her eyes were still. She was a corpse, you know. And that this happens. People are essentially dead. And yet they will have a memory of leaving their bodies, going into some other realm, uh, which they describe as an afterlife or a heaven or whatever language they use. Um, there, it's gorgeous. It's full of light and love. You know, it's it's. I've never heard of one that isn't really positive for people. They will maybe communicate with some people there, learn some things. Uh, they might, and they often they don't want to go back. Sometimes they'll see a deity of some sort there. They don't want to go back, but they realize they. They need to for whatever reason. They have work to do or they have families or whatever it is. Their mission isn't finished. But one of the key things that these people are left with universally is that they're no longer afraid of dying. They know that there is an afterlife and they've been there. And they say it is more vivid. That experience for them was more real than anything they've experienced in the physical body. So it has it's not it has a greater reality for them. It's more vivid, it's more real. And it's not in the, the scientists who have studied this have been able to eliminate things like hallucinate, you know, they're hallucinating on their medication because most of them don't have it, but there's all there's been tons of work done on this and books written about uh, it, you know, where they go through all the possible explanations and be able to rule them out. So it's really um, an astonishing bit of of data, you know, pointing towards the reality of something after we die. Well, I find the most fascinating bit with Dr. Mary Neal, and I, I mean, this is my belief, you tell me what you think. After watching that, I feel that she was meant to be on your, be on Surviving Death, the movie, and tell her story because she obviously goes over and and remembers, you know, so much about it, talks about how beautiful it is and all the colours and all that kind of stuff. And then she's told by these beings that her her son is going to die around the age of 18. And she comes back and she remembers that and she tells no one about it. And then when it's his 18th birthday, she knocks on his door at 4am and says to him, I need you to know this. And he takes it in his stride and all that kind of stuff. And then two years later, he dies. And it, I mean, firstly, I kind of thought, why would they tell her that? <laughs> I mean, that's that's giving you a life of suffering. I agree. That is putting suffering into your life for the, for so long. I mean, to lose a child is one of the most horrific things that can happen to anyone. But at the same time, I feel like maybe they said it to her because they wanted people to know that that this is true. And if she told her story, it would give it a little bit more belief. What do you think? Yeah, that's a really good interpretation of that because I've had that same question. And I think I'm really glad that the filmmakers, because I wasn't so involved in that episode, they chose that case. Yeah. And I think they wanted to show do it because there was this really painful component for her. And it wasn't just all perfection and light and glory, like I was describing, you know, it had this complicated element to it. Um, And actually, they didn't say that before he was 18, but they said he was going to die, you know, as a boy, basically. Uh, Yeah. She decided in her mind, okay, 18 would be the cutoff. Yeah. And she was so happy when he got to be 18. Like you said, she went and told him, guess what they told me all those years ago? Well, it didn't happen. And then he, he got hit by a car. I mean, it's, so I, I've always, I've pondered that question myself about uh, why would they tell her this? Why put her through this? 
if he's going to die, why should why should she know in advance and have to live with that, right? Yeah. I I don't know. I'd like to talk to her about it and see what she thinks. Yes. You know, because I haven't talked to her, um, but uh, it is a really disturbing kind of thing. To, and maybe what you're saying is true. It's it's sort of evidential that that, and it, it makes you ponder the whole question of precognition too, because mm. so many people have precognition. How do they know what's coming in the future? And this is also verification for that. Well, that's it. You no, know? but it's an awfully harsh way to to give that to make that point. Yeah. <laughs> Well, that's what I, I mean, thought. I thought that poor lady, she's just died and come back and now she knows that her child is going to die. I know. It actually gets us on to our next topic, which is mental mediumship, which, I mean, I have been to so many psychics in my life. I adore the, this realm I've been to quite a few mediums, some fabulous ones, some not fabulous ones. And uh, it is something that blows my mind and something that I think is so unbelievably wonderful. But again, as you said, it has to be in the hands of the right person. I, Mm -hmm. I have found the work to be so helpful in my life and has been able to assist me uh, with people that I've lost as well as giving me support and advice for the future. You touch on so many interesting things, but what has been your your experiences with mediums? Well, they've been like you. I've been to, I've had many experiences with mediums um, and some of them I wrote about in my book. Uh, and I think, you know, I had two readings that I wrote about in my book, mm. which were so accurate that as you say, it's just profoundly life-changing, you know, when someone you don't know, and I made sure these people didn't even know who I was ahead of time. You know, one of them was on the phone, one was on Skype. And to to just have them bring through this accurate information and not only the information, but the personalities of the, the people that you're trying to communicate with, it is, I mean, I find it to be one of the more wonderful experiences we can have. I, I and it, it. I think it's very helpful for people who are grieving. It's very helpful for people who just want to believe that there is another reality. That there is that the you know that consciousness does continue whether they've lost someone or not. You know, just to know that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's an, that's another function of mediumship. It just shows you that uh, when you and and so I think on a personal level and a research level, it's just absolutely wonderful. Yes. Um, and, you know, not all mediums are, of course, like you've mentioned, as good as others. It's like any other skill. Mm. You're going to have people who are terrible at it and you're going to have people who are great at it. And the really, really great ones are going to be not that common, just like with anything else, you yes. know. So you have to be careful to find someone who you who is good and not give up if you have a reading that doesn't work out. There are others out there. So I think it's a really positive thing. And it's also evidential for the fact that perhaps, you know, if you're willing to accept that the information is coming from a deceased person, that this is, they exist, that they have gone on after they've died. Well, that's it. Um, And there was this one lady that I saw who was fabulous. And I remember she didn't know anything about me. The same with you. I didn't give her my name. I I think I used a different email address and she, and we organized it that way. It was like, the person was in the room. She would tell me that their hand was touching my back, uh, things that things that 
their names, things that no one else, like one of someone in my life had died and there was only a handful of us that knew how uh, he had died and she knew exactly how he had died and just ways that she described him and things that no one else would have known. You cannot, there is no way that this was just a guess or that it was that broad that she could have just said it. This was 100% real. Right. And it has to be that. I mean, the evidence that comes through has to be very specific, like you just described, or it's not meaningful. You know, and then that's what a really good medium can do. But if they just give you information like, well, your grandmother loved you, you know, (laughs) that doesn't work. It's got to be super specific. And the more specific it is, which it sounds like yours was, the more convinced you're going to be. Oh, absolutely. You know, and so, yeah, when you have a reading like that, you're very fortunate because not all mediums are that good and not all people have that kind of experience. Um, and I, I was fortunate enough to have that kind of experience myself. It's, oh, it's just the most wonderful thing. So, um, yeah. Like we said, it's like any profession. I mean, you can have good doctors, bad doctors, good teachers, bad teachers. It's, it's like within anything. But what do you think makes a good medium so good? Well, that's a good question. I mean, the ones that I know who are really good, especially two who I focused on quite a bit, and I, I talk about them in my book, they both were kind of born with this gift. Yes. And they, as children, they would, they had these kinds of, you know, they could see people who had died or they wouldn't have premonitions of things or they wouldn't, you know, a lot of things would happen to them throughout their childhood. And for years, they didn't know that other people didn't have these same kinds of perceptions that they had. So I don't know if that's maybe at the core of the really great mediums is that it's just something that is innate to them. They don't have to, you know, like nowadays, there's lots of schools where people go to learn to be mediums. But I wonder if the very best ones may be ones that don't need to do that because they're sort of born with it. And it just, it naturally evolves in their lives. They'll just start talking to people and then they'll realize they know things. And then, so anyway, I mean, and then they just, they're dedicated and they, they're focused and they work on it, you know, and they develop this ability because they want to help people. I think that's what it, what it really comes down to. But I think it's something innate that these people have. That's yes. my sense. Yes. No, I, I don't know I, how, if you would agree. I but. absolutely agree. I think it is that. Yeah. And I think a lot of them also do a lot of study around it. So I found like a lot of the ones that I find to be very good have an understanding of quantum physics. They've got an understanding of the whole spiritual realm as well. So I find that that assists them a lot. Right. You have done a lot of work with physical mediumship, which is something that I didn't know as much about. And you've got an amazing story that you have written in your book, Surviving Death, about these hand prints. Can you tell us a bit about that and the research that you have done into into physical mediumship? Sure. And physical mediumship is something not many people know much about, except that they think it's all completely bogus, (laughs) you know, which is understandable because that's that's what people think. And it, it had its heyday in the 1920s and there was a lot of fraud, you know, a lot of fraud that was discovered. Uh, but um, I've been fortunate enough to be working, have worked with a physical medium in the UK, in England, for about five or six years. He, he's the one, I, his name's Stuart Alexander. He's been practicing for over 40, probably 45, 50 years now and never been, he's absolutely genuine. 
I've done all the research to, that would show me that. Um, and what you're talking about, so with physical mediumship, just so people know what it is, the medium is different from mental mediumship where the medium is sort of acting like a telephone operator and sitting with a person and bringing through information. With physical mediumship, the medium is actually in a trance state. And so just to use Stuart as an example, because he's the one I've witnessed, he will, um, he'll go out of his body. He'll just basically be unconscious. So leave his body or go somewhere else. And the spirit communicators who work with him will come into his body and use his brain and his vocal cords to communicate with the people in the room. So his voice will change and, you know, these familiar communicators who have been with him for 30, 40 years will come through and they're like different people using his body and they have various abilities to make things happen in the physical environment. That's why it's called physical mediumship. There'll be physical phenomena that happen in the room that are supposed to be impossible that are never supposed to be able to happen, but they do happen. Among them are things like levitations of objects. Things will move around the room. There'll be a bell on the table and it'll be just picked up and rang with nobody holding it. You know, the, these, these spirit beings can manipulate the environment in all different ways. And sometimes they'll speak out of the air without using spirit's body. So you hear a voice speaking somewhere else in the room. Um, there are all kinds of things that happen. And what you're talking about, which is one of the most amazing things, is um, a, a hand that actually materializes and you can see it. A lot of physical phenomena in physical mediumship take place in the dark because there's a substance called ectoplasm, which is used, which is very sensitive to light. <clears throat> and we, it would take me 20 minutes to explain all of that. You know, people think, oh, that's just bogus. It's in the dark because they're playing tricks on you. That really isn't the case. And people need to, my, my book talks about all of that. <clears throat> so we just have to accept that that's the way it is. And But some of the phenomena are in the light because the spirit team can make them happen that way. They want there to be as much light as they can. So for this one experiment, which many people have witnessed um, with the hand, there's a table with a, a red light bulb under it. So the light comes up through the table and you can see this ectoplasmic cloud come over the, the table. And it's about five feet from the medium who is strapped into a chair with people holding him. He can't move. None of him is moving and he's, He's in a trance state and that the being working through him will describe that he is, is putting his etheric hand into the ectoplasmic cloud on the table. And you can actually see it gradually morph into a hand. So, I mean, let me just tilt this a little bit. You can kind of see this cloud, like, and then you just see the fingers form. And then what he does is he puts his hand in a fist and bangs on the table and it is absolutely solid. You can hear the bang. Whereas, you know, a minute before it didn't exist. He then withdraws the hand, brings it back. And the person on the opposite side of the table is invited to put their hand on the table. And then he will, you can touch his hand and you can feel it and hold it and, you know, moves around. It feels like absolutely like a normal human hand with skin and everything normal. And then the hand will go off the table again and kind of disappear into the ectoplasm. And that's, it's an absolutely phenomenal thing because this hand feels warm and you feel the skin and the knuckles and everything about it is like human. And yet it materializes out of nothing and then goes back into nothing at the end of the uh, experience. And how do you explain that? I mean, they explain it by saying that 
they can sort of use the ectoplasm as a glove kind of, you know, and they can put their, I mean, but it's still very hard for anybody to imagine how this can happen in terms of any kind of scientific explanation. But this has been documented. The other thing that's important for people to know is specifically the materialization of hands was a very interesting theme for me in my book because it's been documented on numerous, well, you know, numerous, maybe four different times or so over the course of history in the last 100 years by absolutely top-notch scientists who had tight controls on every situation. So we know that this has happened before. It's not like Stuart Alexander's doing something that's never happened before. So you have to ask yourself, when you look at the documentation for the previous cases where this has occurred without question, because of its do- level of documentation. So therefore, why couldn't it happen now? And it mm. does within this one little room in, in England. You know, it's been happening for 30 years. <laughs> it's hard to believe, but it's true. I know, I know. And that's why I feel people really need to watch the film Surviving Death or your book, which is fabulous and has so many pictures of this, which is also called Surviving Death. Because it does, it blew my mind. And I I just had so many questions afterwards the mediums that you've spoken to that have the abilities to be able to do physical mediumship, do they enjoy it? It's a good question because I haven't spoken to many yeah. because it's such a rare a rare thing. Um, I'd say I've maybe spoken to three. Um, I would say Stuart would probably say he does. Um, this other medium who's a developing medium who we, we covered named Nicole de Haas in Holland, I think it's not always enjoyable for her. I think it just depends on the particular event. Um, another one I've sat with in Germany, enjoyable. I don't know if they would say that, to tell you the truth. Um, but I think it depends on what the medium allows to, to have happen. I mean, they do have some control. They can set their own parameters. And I think some mediums are more careful about that than others. Yes. Um, so it's. I think it's very individualized. Whether they whether it feels enjoyable to them, basically they kind of don't really feel anything except until afterwards. Yes, because they're they're just not there, you know. And I suppose they're doing it because they want people to be in touch with their loved ones. So they're doing it for the highest good to allow people to have that special meeting. Right. I mean, certainly Stuart. Again, I'll keep talking about him because I yeah. know him by far the best. Is um. I mean, that's a component of the seance. It's not just the physical phenomena that we've been talking about, but it's also, there's one communicator communicator who comes through him who facilitates that kind of communication. So it's a way that you can go a step further than you can with mental mediumship because you can speak kind of directly to your loved ones in a way you can't, and you can actually have conversations with physical mediumship. And sometimes the loved one will also will try to use Stuart's body themselves and will speak directly to the sitter. And it's hard for them to do that. So that, yes, Stuart Alexander feels that the most important part of his mediumship is that it's that communication bet- between the sitters and loved ones that he feels is more evidential and more important than any of the physical phenomena that take place. But when you have the combination of all of it, it's, it's pretty powerful. There is another uh, topic that you cover in Surviving Death, which is apparitions, which happen a lot at end-of-life experiences for people. And I have to say, uh, this when I watched the movie Surviving Death, this was, this was the episode that actually freaked me out a bit. And I don't know why, and I'm just being honest, 
but I felt yep. a bit unnerved after this episode and um, and I couldn't put my finger on why. Yep. I have to talk about this one scene that really affected me. It was a, it was a story of a mother who had a, her daughter was dying who was, I mean, the age was 10 or 12 or something like that, who was dying of brain cancer and it just stuck out to me more than anything and she was obviously very normal and then got diagnosed and was was really unwell she was obviously going to die that was that was a very known thing and one day she is in her room and her mum just overhears her talking and she's by herself in her room and this was very much close to the end of her time and and afterwards she said to her daughter who were you talking to and her daughter says oh just god we were just we were just having a conversation and i think i was i just was sitting in my chair, firstly about to weep, but also I just felt really moved by that story. And and then you go back to the mum and obviously the girl died, I think two days later. And the mum said, you know, I knew then that it was her final days when she said that to me, but it also was so unbelievably comforting to know that she was going to be in a better place and that she was not scared to die. So, I mean, what was your take on that and yeah. and that whole episode? I agree with you. It was really moving and I mean, I didn't I just found it to be very moving because that was about a, a doctor, a hospice doctor. Yeah. And you know, a hospice do you have hospice in Australia? Yes, I don't yes. know. But yeah. And so he he was documenting these people who have these visions and experiences like you were describing at the end of life. They're all people who are consciously dying. So they're not heavily medicated or anything. Yeah. It's extremely moving. Um, uh, you know, they'll sometimes they'll see their loved ones come into the room and talk to them. You remember the old man who was yes. talking about his wife would come and it is absolutely real for these people, you know, as far as they're concerned. And, I've talked to hospice nurses who can, they can determine where the person is at along their path towards death by looking at what is happening to them at this level. Like you were saying, the mom knew if she was almost going to die. There are people that can know that very, very well who have been with a lot of dying people. There's a whole series of things that happen at the end of life. And it's almost like they have one foot in that world and one foot in our world. And they will have connection to the other side before they pass over in various ways. And it's, yeah, it's really moving. It's really sad to see these people dying. But as you say, um, it it allows them to, to feel comforted and not feel frightened. And I think it's helpful for the families, too. So, yeah, I found that episode to be really moving. Um, and, you know, these are so common People yes. don't talk about it that much, you know. I mean, my mother, who died when she was 92 or 3, she had a vision the night before she died of her brother, who had died before her, being in the room. And it was so vivid that she was like, ex- she was like exclaiming, like with recognition that he was there, just saying his name, like, hi, you know, like it wasn't like he was in that room and she was reacting to him as if he was standing right there. Wow. It was. And she had been just sort of out of it on, you know, medication for four or five days. And she suddenly woke up like as if he had woken her up. Oh, my God. You know, she said his name. 
oh, it's you, you know, and then she went to sleep and died the next day. And there are so many experiences that people have like that. And it's just hard to write them off as some kind of hallucination or something, especially if the person isn't on any drugs that would cause hallucinations like that. And I do feel like you said it is such a, I think it is a comforting thing. I mean, for someone that is about to move to the next life or the continuation of this life, however you like to put it, to know that the person that they probably miss the most is going to be there for them when they do depart. Can you imagine how much difference that would make? I mean, they say the people who study this or the people who have lost loved ones and witnessed it, it, it's it's as if they're being helped. Your loved ones will come over to help you cross over. I mean, that's what the mediums say too. Your loved ones are going to be there to help you make that transition. And it's almost like they're letting you know that before that moment comes. Yes, it's it's beautiful. um, And even the people who don't... uh, you know, if you're with somebody who's dying and they don't verbalize it, that doesn't mean it's not happening for them. Yes, yes, that's so. Very you know, true. you mustn't think, well, my my mom didn't have that experience. You don't know that. Mm-hmm. You don't know what she might have had and didn't express or wasn't able to express for whatever reason. So, uh, I think it's more common than we think. It allows us to be very, very comforted when we think of death as well. And to, I think, the whole thing with surviving death as well is to know that it's not a scary thing. Right. I mean, I don't look forward to, you know, it can be painful for some people, but the moment, uh, you know, in terms of it being some kind of final end of everything, I mean, I think if you don't believe that you're going to, even if, you know, I mean, we can't prove that, but I think we can all take comfort in in seeing all the, the evidence that suggests that you, it isn't the end. Yes. And even if, you know, so, so, if, if you're holding that vision, it's, I would think it's going to make the process easier for you and the people with you. People Absolutely. You, so. there's, a, yeah. there's a great chapter that you have in your book. And again, obviously it's in the movie and it's a, a story about signs from the dead. And I want to tell you a bit about yeah. a, a story that I have. It's, it, I don't know if it was a sign from the dead, but it was a sign. And yeah. I found out about the idea of signs and asking for signs many years ago and I felt it being a very comforting tool whenever I have to make a big decision in my life. It doesn't even have to be big, but it's something that I might be not 100% sure about and something that's been really effective for me. And just last year I had a situation that occurred that I, I didn't know what to do. It was quite challenging and it was really about, do I send this email or do I not? And I was over it, Leslie. Uh, I don't know if I'm going to send the email. I just want to leave it alone. If I am supposed to send this email, then, and I did that, I asked for the sign right at the end of my meditation. So I was in a very sort of calm state. I said, if I'm supposed to send this email, right. please allow a butterfly in the next two days to come so close to my face that right. I will know 100% that, that I'm supposed to send this email. And if it doesn't come, that is my sign that I'm not supposed to send it. And, you know, you ask for a sign, you kind of forget about it. That's what happens with me in the past. Anyway, I think a day or so passed and I was going for a walk really early morning with a friend of mine and, you know, we're in and out of lockdown. So we had masks that were around our, our necks. And I'm walking and I'm talking to her and I'm talking and next minute <laughs> something flies into my mouth and I spit it out and it lands in my mask. I look down and it oh is my God. a butterfly. 
a butterfly. Oh my god, that's incredible! <laughs> it was the you most talk inc- about close to your face, right? <laughs> close to my face, so I will know that it is a sign. Well, hello, that was a that's sign amazing. and a half. And not only that, I sped it out and was wearing the mask, so it caught it, so I could see for sure what it was. So it didn't just, you know, land on the ground and fly away. I could see what it was, and you know what, Leslie. I sent the email and everything worked out absolutely perfectly. So the <laughs> so the advice to send the email was the best prompt I got in the in the perfect direction I needed to be. So great. What a great story. Yeah, absolutely. What a great story. I mean, you know, it's it's risky to ask for signs too. Mm. I mean, you, you know, I sometimes I wonder like what if I don't get the sign or if I don't get it does it really mean that I wasn't supposed to send the email because maybe I'm blocking it or, you know, it's just cool and it works. Yes, it is. And yeah, it's really great. That's a wonderful story. That's that was really like in your face, like (laughs) send it right now. You know, (laughs) it was, it was true. And like I said, it worked out so well, but I know in your book, there were, I mean, it obviously was a lot to do with people that wanted communication from their loved ones. Can you tell us a bit about, a bit about that? Yeah, I mean, I, I I did cover another number of great cases in my book of signs, um, and some people will get them, a lot of them from their one. I mean, it seems like some people who die and are really connected to somebody on Earth, they'll just get into doing the signs, you know, and they might get a lot of them. And we're, you know, and I feel bad for the people that don't get the signs. I don't know what determines it, but. Um, I mean, this one man I wrote about in my book named Jeff Kane, who just had these extraordinary, one of them was he was told that um, a dime was going to be, a, uh, yeah, I think it was a dime was going to be a sign for him. And he just poo-pooed it and said, okay, yeah, so we're going to start seeing dimes everywhere. And every time we see one, we're going to think it's a sign. It doesn't mean anything. And then the, what happened was his wife and daughter were swimming in the ocean and suddenly a dime floated into one of their hands, literally just floated into their hands while they were swimming in the ocean in the waves. You know, I mean, that that's a sign, right? How Absolutely. often does that happen? And he had all kinds of other things that happened to him. Uh, you know, I mean, there's another story that I, I, I documented in the book by a, a, a parapsychological researcher named Lloyd Auerbach, who's done a lot of, written a lot of books and, He's very careful about everything that he will talk about. You know, these people aren't making these things up because these are very credible, credentialed people. And he had a situation where he lost a very close friend um, and he was driving in his car and he suddenly smelt the cigar, the exact cigar smoke that he associated with his friend because his friend was a heavy cigar smoker. And he knew that that was a sign from his friend because there was nothing in the car to create that scent. But what was incredible about it was when he got out of his car later, he called up two of his friends who were also very close to the friend who died to tell them about it, got them on the phone before they could even he could even tell them. They said, guess what happened to me this morning? And it was right around the same time. They said, I got the smell of cigar from our friend in one of them was a, a pilot. He had it in his cockpit. Another one had it somewhere else, and they all three had it at this around just around the same time of day, which you know that's pretty incredible. You can't chalk that up to coincidence. No, not at all. And e- each one of them recognized it as being that 
person. Yeah. You know, they didn't have to rely on the other person telling them. They they knew in the moment because it was such a clear, uh, distinctive association that they had. So, And I think a lot of the signs for these, you know, families that are grieving or friends that are grieving, it shows them that they're still connected to their loved ones and their loved ones are still, are still there. And that is what the comforting thing is for them when they are shown a sign by their loved one. I completely agree. That's the whole purpose of it. Exactly. It's just, and they're just sort of like the person saying hello, yeah. you know, I'm still with you. I'm still here. I'm not fully, you know, it is so comforting because mm. it allows the a person who's lost their loved one to feel a connection with them. Even after they've gone, you don't feel like they're just gone forever. And there's this void. I mean, you're always going to miss that person, but there's something that's filled by having that kind of afterlife connection with them when you're convinced that they have sent you a sign. Yes. Uh, it's very personal too. Mm. There's no way you can prove it. It's usually involves just one person, you and the person sending the sign. So it's, it's a very intimate kind of meaningful experience. There's a lot of meaning to it. Um, yes. And I, my, I lost my brother when I was writing my book and I received some signs for him and I would consider them to be for me, among the most evidential, you know, experiences of evidential anything that yeah. I'm aware of, even though they're just totally personal and nothing I can ever prove to anybody else. So it's kind of an irony there when you're a journalist, right, bringing forward evidence. And yet the one that means the most to you is the one you can never prove. But, you know, it's just they're very, very powerful when they happen. And like your butterfly, you know, mm. was that sign from just the universe or was, was it were was, you asking it from no, a specific person it was just from the universe so it was yeah cool. it was really cool and I it just reminded me when I interviewed recently Olivia Newton-John she spoke about her mother dying and she's a very spiritual person and I think she asked her mum to show her a sign and and as soon as her mum had died the she was given a huge sign so that for her was extremely comforting well, do you remember the story in Surviving Death of the Cardinal? Oh, yes. That was I'd one of my favorite, most favorite moments in yeah. the whole movie. Yeah, that was beautiful. Can you describe, can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah. Um, these two, these, these, these two ladies who lost, these sisters who lost their mom, she was old and they had, and, and they'd had a thing with her about cardinals because they used to go bird watching with her. When they'd visit her, they'd go look at the cardinals because where they lived, there weren't any cardinals. So they asked their mom, when you die, will you send us a cardinal? So then we'll know it's you. And she said, I'll try, you know, or whatever. And it just happened that I think it was the day of her, uh, of her memorial yes. service. They came home afterwards and they were playing some, some games and this cardinal suddenly flew into their window and they were able to hold it. And they took these videos, uh, which are so beautiful. They hold it and strike, you know, stroke it. And then they, at one point they tried to get it to fly off and it flew right back to them. This was like a wild cardinal, you know. It might have been a little stunned from hitting the window. I don't know. But eventually they went up into a tree. But to just watch the expressions on these women's mm. faces and their expressions of joy as this was unfolding for them and their recognition that it was their mother was just, it's just great that somebody videotaped it. Yes. You know, uh, it was just so beautiful and moving to watch. And the it's just the most ecstatic kind of a moment for anybody to have. You know? I think it was also reassurance for them yeah. that she was okay, that she was, she, Definitely. she had, she had crossed over and she was telling them that she was there and she was fine. And that was, that was a, 
That was beautiful. I actually remember that video at the time. I think it went viral because it's such an amazing, amazing video. And and like you said, to see their reactions, they are so happy at knowing they know. There's no shadow of a doubt. And I think when what you mentioned before, it's such a personal thing. When it happens to you, you know, you don't need anyone else to tell you or give you reassurance. You know that this is your connection with the loved one that you had asked for. I know. I agree. And, you know, a skeptic, somebody looking at it from the outside could just say, well, it's just a coincidence. This bird happened to fly into the picture window and get stunned. And it took it a while to come back to being able to fly. Yeah. And, it, you know, how can you prove that that wasn't just a coincidence? The same thing with signs I've had. People can say that. But what you're going through internally, like you said, there's just such a knowing mm. that it you know, it's, a, it's like you're in an altered state almost when it yes. happens, really. Absolutely. And somebody looking at it from the outside has no way of comprehending that. Mm. Um, there's just no way. But I like what you said, too. It is the, way, it is the person's way of saying, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm good. I'm fine. I made it. Yes. Nothing to worry about, right? <laughs> well, I think that I'm, is I'm, such a and big I'm, thing. And I'm still with you. Mm. I'm still with you. I'm still with you, Yeah. What's your greatest hope for society today? Well, for society, I guess one would be that people become more spiritually conscious and very much connected to that, I think, is I'm very concerned about the climate crisis. And so I I feel like one of the most important things we can do as a society is to address that and try to do something to at least slow it down. I mean, very concerned about the, the planet. Um. But that's very linked to having a a higher level of consciousness where, uh, you know, we have to be willing to acknowledge it and be smart. And it's so complicated because you have people running countries who think it doesn't even, it's not even real. Mm. So, you know, so it gets down to the more the human dilemma. But um, in terms of society, I think that's one of our most important issues, but I also think fundamentally it's the recognition that consciousness is really at the root of everything. Mm. And that um, if we can all connect within ourselves and through whatever methods and pathways we find for ourselves to that greater consciousness, it's only going to improve life for ourselves and everyone around us and ultimately then for society. Mm. So, you know, that's, to me, that's a really important uh, important element of being human is to try and make that happen and then to give back and give to those around us through whatever we can learn and however we grow ourselves in that pathway. What's the best advice that you've ever been given? To stay on that centrally focused path of greater consciousness and that love is really the core of everything. What is a life of greatness to you? A life of greatness is just living as profoundly in tune with your deepest self as you can. Leslie Keane, thank you so much for everything that you do for bringing our eyes to all this fantastic knowledge. Thank you so much for having me, Sarah. If you've enjoyed this episode, then I'd love you to join my community on Instagram at Sarah Grimberg, where we post videos and behind-the-scenes footage of each recording. You can also join my private Facebook group, Live Life Greatly, 
where we discuss the content in this episode and many more, as well as give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning. To purchase my ebook, Finding Greatness, head to sarahgrimberg.com. And if you love what you heard, then we'd love you to hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app and leave a five-star review. It will help us share this wisdom with others. A Life of Greatness's executive producer is me, Sarah Grimberg. Audio producers, Matt Curry and Nicola Sitch. Special thanks to Grant Tothill for bringing this dream to life. For more episodes, search a Life of Greatness podcast, download the new listener app now and listen for free. Listener.